0: Well, good morning, everyone. We are back in Samuel. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Second Samuel, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. I'll read those for us now, beginning in verse 13. Now, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to, the, say to him that the child is dead? Then David arose from the earth, oh, I'm sorry. Then David understood that the child was dead because they were whispering with one another. And David said to his servants, Is he dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and then he asked, and they set Food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much. For David's repentance. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Even in sorrow, even in gladness, your word is true, and you are always the same. I pray, God, that as we consider the, the true consequence of sin and all that, is, uh, that we deserve because of sin and all that we receive from you by grace, unmerited favor, I pray, God, that we would know you better and know ourselves better and that we would be better comforters, that we would be better ministers to one another in our grief that we would, Lord God, cry out to you all the more, for you are a gracious God who hears us. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, just for review purposes, we're here in chapters 11 through 12, and they tell a single connected story, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, these chapters set the course of events for the remainder of the book. Everything that happens at this point is it was stated plainly by Nathan to David in this portion. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to understand. The first thing is that this is David's fall. This is David's fall. In 2 Samuel 7, the Lord promised that David's dynasty would continue, that his son would be a temp- build a temple for the Lord, and that the seed of David would be Forever. He made eternal promises. He built a new household, one that would bless the whole world. Chapter 7 is crucial for understanding the gospel, the Messiah, and everything that comes um, with Jesus Christ as a, as a descendant of David. Now, all of those promises were given to David. And what did David do? Well, Like Adam, David sinned after, after given these promises. After the new creation of the Davidic covenant, there was a new fall. This is what always happens when God expects something from us, from created men and women who are in Adam. We will fall. Now, like Adam, David sinned in relation to a woman. Adam's sin was spiritual adultery, but David's is literal adultery. Now, like Adam's Adam's sin, David's sin involved eating forbidden fruit, taking that which did not belong to him, which was denied him. Now... The second thing is that David's sin is comparable to Saul's. David waited patiently to receive the kingdom from the Lord, but after being established as the king, he began to take things. Like one of the kings of the surrounding nations, just as Samuel had warned, David is a taker, like Saul. In fact, this habit of taking women is something that we've seen many times from David already. It's well-developed long before he becomes king. He multiplied his wives, remember, in violation of Deuteronomy 17. A king is not supposed to multiply his wives, but David has. Remember Michael, who he took? He took her from the husband that loved her. Now, it was one of his great failures leading up to this. We should not be surprised that he has done what he has done because there's hints all along that this is a trap for him, a trap he set for himself. He has created a pattern, and at this point it has turned fatal. This is what happens when we ignore habitual sin in our lives. It leads to death. There will be blood. David's sin, like Saul's, was not merely a personal sin. It's a threat to the entire kingdom. If David did not repent of his sin, his robe would be torn from him just as Saul's was. It's it's, it's a national disaster what he has done. And, And depending on what happens now, he may be stripped of his robe just like Saul. No one is safe. No one is safe. No one is safe from the promises of God. You're either with him or you're against him. And if you're against him, he will be against you no matter what he has said to you. Now, Nathan's delivery of Yahweh's word was the hinge on which the whole story turns. The Lord sent his final messenger, a prophet, with a parable and a word of judgment. David's penitent reaction is the thing that saves the kingdom. Repentance saves the kingdom. Nathan fulfilled one of the leading functions of a prophet, namely to rebuke and correct rulers. This is one of the prophet's most important jobs. Samuel did this for Saul, Elijah for Ahab, Jeremiah for all the kings of the last days of Judah. Prophets, as the saying goes, speak truth to power. That's what they do. They're not afraid to say, listen, the word of God is more important than your desires. This is why John the Baptist was killed. He, he, he would not be, remain silent. When the king, Herod, was sleeping with his brother's wife, had taken his brother's wife as his own, it was a great wickedness. And he he stood up and he filled the role of a prophet by telling the king what God thought of his sin. So Nathan does something that's quite dangerous. Nathan does something that has gotten many a prophet killed restraining the king, announcing the word of the Lord to the king. This is a primary responsibility of the church to speak truth to power, to tell the the government when it gets out of line, when their sin is a problem, and, and to not fear the result, to not fear what they could possibly do to us. Because what could they do to us? They could come in here like a bunch of jack-booted thugs and beat us with sticks if they wanted. They could arrest us. We see this going on in China. This is something that we need to learn as the modern church, that our prophetic responsibility to speak to the government. This is one of the things that we are here to do, is to instruct people, whether they're sitting on thrones or not. Now David responds to Nathan with confession immediately. It's a great grace that God has given him. His his immediate response is to confess that he has, in fact, sinned. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't make excuses. And the Lord's forgiveness is equally direct and unrestrained, and that's important for us to understand, right? We we ought to repent quickly, and, and when we do, we will see that God's forgiveness is almost faster than that. It's almost like, wow, I wasn't even done confessing, and you've already forgiven me. That's how fast God's grace is. That's how rich God's grace is. As soon as we utter as soon as we turn back, as soon as we cry out, as soon as we confess with our mouths, we find that the Lord is there and he, his grace sustains us. His grace washes over us. His grace renews us. Now the Torah, the law of God, declared that all murderers and all adulterers must die. That is the result of, of, of David's actions. He must be put to death. Leviticus twenty four seventeen: Whoever takes a woman or I'm sorry, <laughs> whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. If you take the life of an image bearer, you cough up your life. That's what you give up. The death penalty is biblical. The death penalty is necessary. And David deserves the death penalty. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So shall you purge the evil from Israel. And this is, this is one of the things about our culture, right? When, when, when secularists are trying to dunk on me, oh, do you believe, like the Bible, that homosexuals should be put to death? Actually, no, but I do believe adulterers should. People are always like, whoa, what? Yes, people who commit adultery should receive the death penalty. I, I actually do believe that. Why? Because that's what the word of God says. It says, purge the evil from amongst you. Because if you defy the marriage covenant, if you defile the marriage covenant, you're, you're, def- you're going at the very heart of the gospel, the very heart of who God is. And, and it's something that's sacrosanct. And, and the fact that we have no-fault divorce, the fact that you can have adulteries and it doesn't matter. I, like, forget homosexuals. What they need is ministry. Let's go, back, let's go back and talk about the old-fashioned way when we used to put adulterers to death. Because the sexual sin rampant in our country started with, when, when the fact that we stopped taking marriage seriously. When easy divorce came along. When no-fault divorce came along. right? That's when it started. This chaos that we are in. And we don't take the word of God seriously. We don't take the standards of marriage seriously. And you can see what happens. What you, what, what you have are people running around who ought to be put to death. And if you, if you ever want to... I mean, if you really ever want to instruct someone in the Word of God, it never says that homosexuals should be put to death, but adulterers should. Now, why do the Lord choose not to enforce this unambiguous requirement of the Sinai Covenant? This is equally important. He deserves death. People who commit murder, people who commit adultery, ought to be put to death. Amen. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't do it. Why not? Why not? Right? You search the word why. Why would he do it? this merciful act why wouldn't he give David his just deserts? why wouldn't he give David what he righteously deserves and it's because of grace and this is what grace is this is not giving us what we deserve this is how mercy and grace work together if you ever want to know the difference okay mercy is not giving you what you do deserve grace is giving you what you do not So the mercy that God shows him here is not giving him the punishment that he deserves. The grace is giving him things that he does not deserve. And this is how mercy and grace work together. There can only be one answer. There can be only one answer as to why God does not put David to death. And it's because he is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Exodus 34, 7. That's why the very heart of God, the nature of God, the person of God, the work of God is to show us mercy and grace. His kindness is why. Now, and this angers some of us. It angers some of us. Why didn't David get what he deserved? especially as we go on in the story and we see that it does actually cause someone their life, it makes us even angrier because the mercy and, and grace of God always makes us angry, right? When, when, it, when, when it's put upon somebody who we don't think is deserving of either, we think, how dare God do such a thing? Now, we love grace and mercy when we receive it. But have you ever read this story and thought, well, I, you know, David, I don't like you. I don't like you. And why don't we like him? Not because of his sin, but because he receives something that we don't think he deserves. And this happens to a lot of us. I've made the joke before, but I remember at Mars Hill, <laughs> when I was first converted, I'm walking around, and I saw this guy, and I, thought my, and I saw him, and I hadn't seen him in years, and I thought, oh, him? He's here? Who let that guy in? I was like, can I talk to whoever's in charge? Because that guy is here, and I don't think he should be. And what was upsetting to me was the mercy and grace that he was receiving. This story challenges us on the most fundamental level of Christians because we don't think that David deserves either mercy or grace, and we are correct, and that's the God that we serve. Based on his own wisdom, based on his, his, right, his own character, he makes these decisions, and our job is to rejoice in them and to, to reflect on the fact that we are in just like David. Because Jesus comes along and says, what? Oh, Let's talk about adultery. Let's talk about murder. Let's talk about the fact that you're all adulterers and murderers. And, and now let me show you mercy and grace. You're not so mad now, are you? David lived for the same reason that the nation of Israel lived, for the same reason that you live and I live. Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Ad- Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. How can I give you up? I love you too much. How can I give you up? My, my compassion is growing warm within me, and so I forgive you, and I will be gracious to you. That is the heart of the God that you serve. That is what you receive from him. That is what every sinner receives from him. Now, in an unadorned fashion, Nathan responds to David by declaring that the Lord has taken away your sin he has covered it. David takes his courage in both hands and faces up to the fact that he is without excuse. He has incurred the death penalty, and though he is king, he confesses his guilt before the prophet, who despite being God's mouthpiece, is actually one of David's subjects. And this, again, we we see the humility of David. Now, in the ancient Near East, do you know how likely it is that a king is going to confess to one of his subjects that he has, in fact, committed these heinous crimes? Do our rulers confess to the heinous crimes to which they commit, right? I mean, we could talk. We could talk about documents being hidden in palaces on the sea. We could talk about if you have dirt on a certain family that rhymes with Fenton, how you suddenly commit suicide, right? Do we we talk about these things? Do people come out and say, yes, these are the things that I have done? No, they hide and conceal. There's conspiracies. What, what, what is Watergate all about? Watergate was about the fact that they were hiding the crimes that they were committing. Government officials, rulers, don't just start admitting that they commit these heinous crimes, especially to somebody like Nathan, who has the authority to actually keep David in check. This is extreme humility. This is uh, extreme trust on David's part. Because this is the kind of thing in which right, one, one dynasty is replaced with another. These are usually the kind of events that, that precede a coup that precedes some sort of overthrow. And, and the, there's a lot of trust in David. There's a lot of hope that Nathan is going to hear his confession and go to God on his behalf and restore him. It's a very humble thing that David, David is back, essentially. At this point in the story, we can read this and we say, oh, look, it's David again. I haven't seen you for a few chapters. Welcome back. Now, such a loss of face is incredibly hard to bear, he could have been regarded as political suicide, but David convinced, was convinced of Nathan's integrity, his love for him, and so he humbled himself in confession. And that's the kind of thing that you should do for, to your spouse, to your children, to one another. You should trust. You should trust one another say, listen, I'm going, I'm going to deface myself now. I'm going to humble myself now. I'm going to kneel down and confess to the tawdry thing that I have done because what I, I'm expecting, that the people of God are compassionate, that the people of God are like the God that they serve. Now, why is it that we doubt one another in this way? Do you trust one another the way David trusts Nathan? Do you trust your spouse this way? Do you trust your children? What's missing? What's wrong with us where we don't? Right? Would, you, would you humble yourself the way David has done before a subject, a coworker, a child, a spouse? Now, immediately upon his confession, Nathan says, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the turning point of the life of David. And the clearest indication that he is different from Saul in the most essential relationship of all, and that is the submission to the Lord God. This is the thing that Saul would not do. If Saul would have done this, God would have saved him. God would have spared him. God would have cleansed him. God would have turned his wrath away from him. But what you see here is, is, is not only how a king ought to act, but how every man and woman of us are to act. This is the most important relationship. And we don't turn. We don't hide. We don't make excuses. You turn to God and you take what's coming. It doesn't matter, right? I'll humble myself. I I will be shameless in front of people like Nathan. I don't care. He wants to be restored to God more than he wants anything else. And this is why he is David. This is why he is a man with a heart after God. Because there's a certain point when people descend into certain kinds of sins that they no longer turn back. They've gone too far sometimes. And they're not going to admit to what they have done. Because there, there's a certain arrogance and pride that comes with certain high-handed sins. Once you're killing image bearers, once you're committing adultery, once you're committing these kinds of, of sins, it, it, it is unlikely that you're going to return. But David does. Why? Because still, after all this, he, he, will, he will stand up and he will tell whoever wants to listen, this is what I have done and this is what I deserve because what he wants back is the Lord. And that's what we saw last week in Psalm 51. Now, though the sin is taken away and the death sentence is removed, Nathan says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. Now, this is very, very, very difficult to understand. Why? Why does, why, why does God stop with David and not show mercy and not show grace and not show kindness to this child? Well, and, and this is, there's a lot about this that we fundamentally do not understand. And it's what I'm always saying about there will be blood. There are consequences to sin, right? The wages of sin is death. There's no way to avoid it. Somebody is going to have to die. Now, in spite of forgiveness, some penalty for the sin remains, and someone needs to bear it. Now, penalty, I'm going to put in scare quotes, pen, some penalty for sin, because how is it that God forgives him and yet there's a penalty for the sin? Is anybody else wondering? Right? Let's, this math isn't adding up. And this is the very thing that we struggle with. We think that because we're forgiven, there's no penalty for the sins we commit. Now, I want to make a distinction between unforgiven sin, which receives penalties, and forgiven sins, which receives disciplinary consequences. And there's a huge difference. If you are unrepentant, you will be penalized, you will be punished. If you even if you are forgiven, if you are a child, you will be disciplined. And oftentimes we can't tell the difference between those things, just like we can't tell the difference between Job and Jonah. Now the Lord forgave David, he granted him the unmerited uh, gift of life. He did not remove all the consequences resulting from David's sin. God hardly ever does that. Sin has consequences. Often we think that our violation of God's law affect only us and anyone else who is guilty of the sins in which we have participated. We have a very difficult time understanding exactly what sin does, and sin separates. Sin taints. Sin affects people. This is why Achan in the the Old Testament story steals something, and, and then Israel goes out And they they are unsuccessful in battle. Why? Because what Achan does affect people, whether they know about it or not. And, And this is like one of the hardest things to convince people of. What you may or may not have done earlier this week is affecting all of us. What I did or didn't do is affecting all of us. Sin has an effect on the people of God, whether you can see it or not. The death of David and Bathsheba's first child indicates that sin can have ramifications far beyond the original parties of the sin, and we all need to stop and get on our knees and consider what this means. We often think that the violations of God's law affect only us, but that is not the case. It's very short-sighted. Our sins affect the lives of other people. They affect relationships. Sin poisons everything it touches, and when we give in to sin, we can poison everything we touch. Disciplinary consequences are related to sin. They reflect the displeasure of God for the sin, but their aim is not retributive, retributive justice, excuse me, okay? They are no part of God's condemnation. God can say, I forgive you and I do not con- condemn you, and yet there is still a consequence for the thing that you have done. We, and we like to think that because God forgives us, there's no consequences. And that's not how it works. If you lie to me and you break my trust, I will forgive you, but you, I would be a fool to then go and trust you immediately. And, and people are like, well, then you don't forgive me. Not true. I totally forgive you, and I wouldn't tell you a secret <laughs> to save my life at this point. Now, in the future, I might. And this people really struggle with this, because in marriage counseling, I go through this all the time. You're like, yes, she forgave you. I get that she forgave you. I get that she forgave you. I get that you sh- she forgave you. I would still sleep on the couch for a few weeks. Okay. Maybe in a few weeks we can move you back into the bedroom. But for now, you're separated. Why? Because of the terrible thing that you've done costs you something. It costs you something. Now, if she's really forgiven you, she should stop bringing it up. But that doesn't mean that everything is just hunky-dory right away. (laughs) If I I went down to the Wendy's parking lot, and I didn't like how long the, the guy at the window was taking, and I punched him in the face... Could he forgive me for that sin? Yes. Would that suddenly fix his broken nose? No, right? And that we're like, okay, well, that seems logical. So then, so then why is it that we go to other categories of sin and we think magically there's no consequences now, right? There would still be a police report. There would most likely still be <laughs> charges filed, and the person would still have bruises. And, and okay, and now we're all forgiven and we're hugging it out and we go to a mediator and it's fantastic on that side of it. And, and yet I still go and spend three days in jail. Right? In that situation, everybody's like, yes, it makes fun. Don't worry, I'm not going to assault the Wendy's guy. I like the Wendy's guy. Don't get me wrong. I'm just making an example. It's a story. Now, disciplinary consequences are, are like this. Okay? We have to understand that sin is a costly business. It's a dangerous thing. It reflects the displeasure of God for sin. The aim is to restore us. The aim is to get us to not do it again, right? I, like, how many of us have had children who confessed to a crime and we still spank them for it? Now, if you don't because they confessed to the crime, you're actually, you're doing them a disservice. You're doing them a disservice. There should always be a consequence for high-handed sin. There should be. You should show mercy and grace when somebody comes to you and confesses openly. I love it when my kids just confess to the crimes and I don't have to find it weeks later or days later or hours later. But there's still going to be a penalty. Why? Because, because if you're a loving parent, you want them not to do it again. You want them not to do it again. Now, what happens is that God on the cross deals with our sins. Or if He doesn't, if, if that doesn't apply to us, we go to hell. That's, that's ultimately how he deals with sins. Right? You're, they're either forgiven in the Lord, and he says, now there's no condemnation. Come into my into my fellowship come into my person come into my presence come into into my house in heaven and live with me forever or if you reject that you will go to to hell and and there you will deal with the consequences of the things you have and haven't done now that that's the grand story but but there's sin still has an effect on us and the relationships In which we uh, that we have in this world, the aim of God sent consequences for for forgiven sin are to demonstrate the exceeding evil of sin, to show that God does not take sin lightly, even when He lays aside His punishment, and to humble and sanctify the forgiven sinner to cleanse them. In Hebrews twelve six, it says, "The Lord disciplines him whom He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives." Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, so if I'm driving down the road, and I'm not paying attention, I'm staring at my phone, and I look up just enough time to barely avoid the five-car pileup, have I avoided the consequence of my sins, my selfishness, my distraction, my willfulness of not paying attention to the giant two-ton truck that I'm driving down the road, right? Okay, so I think, wow, man, I really dodged a bullet there. I, sh- I deserve to have that car wreck, but I didn't receive it, and so I'm good. A half mile down the road, the lights turn on behind me, woo, 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 and I get pulled over to the side of the road, and I get a ticket. Oh, I thought, I, you know, I cried out to God and said, please forgive me for just doing that, and I thought I was going to avoid the consequences of this. And, and this is the kind of thing that, we, <laughs> that we're dealing with all the time. I'm being disciplined, right? Okay, good. You didn't have a five-car pileup and spend the next six weeks in, in the ER. Fantastic. But here, now you're going to pay out the nose for what you've done. And, and you think, thank God that it was only this. This is mercy that he's given me. And, and okay, now, now think about your relationships. Think about the lies and the gossip. Think about the underhandedness. Think about how, right, how, how you're, you're being dishonest with perhaps the way that you're clocking in and out of work. Are you stealing from your boss? Are there consequences for these sins? Are they affecting the people in your, in, in your life? And even if you're forgiven for them, oughtn't God to teach you through it, like He would a child that He loves, instructing you through the circumstances that you brought upon yourself to walk in uprightness. We must not equate forgiveness with the absence of painful impacts, of sin. Sin is destructive, and that's what it does. It destroys, it harms, it hurts. God can turn away the wrath of the final judgment while leaving us with the present realities of sin's destructions. Now think of gambling debts, pregnancy outside of wedlock, poor health resulting from destructive behavior. Imagine you, right, all you do is drink Mountain Dew and eat Doritos for 20 years, and then one day you're like, you know what, I'm I'm going to die because I'm obese, and I'm going to cry out to God to forgive me. Now suddenly are you going to stop being obese all those years, all that, all that soda that you drank, and all that sugar, and all that nonsense, all that fake cheese, is it's going to affect your arteries? It would be absurd to think it's not going to. Lies, and gossip, and divorce, lots of forgiven sins still leave a destructive wake. And that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. That doesn't, it means, oftentimes, that he does. And this, this is where we don't... Are, are you Jonah or Job? You hardly know. Because you're looking around at the destructive fate that you caused, and you think, God doesn't love me. Well, it could have been a lot worse. Okay, this is why sometimes in counseling as well, you're sitting down with people and you're like, man, you got off easy, and they're like crying. They're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> maybe this is the wrong time. Maybe in a couple of weeks I'll say that to you. But you think sometimes people in the destructive stuff they're doing, you're like, man, you really got out of that with very little cost to yourself. That's a hard sell. It's hard to hear. It's hard to convince yourself of that. You know, I deserve so much better. I, I, I deserve to have no consequences, right? I, I mean, I can explain what happened. So how often do you go on from repenting and confessing your sin to then tra- to doing the same just, self-justifying that you would because of the consequences? And, and it creates all this trouble. Like, people are confused. If you, if you get divorced after 25 years of marriage, isn't there going to be a destructive wake? This is why God says, don't do it. It's destructive. You're you're doing harm. And so everybody in in the community can forgive the person. They can have all this reconciliation, but you're still going to have to deal with the fact that you're having two Thanksgivings. That's never going to go away. People reap what they sow. Amen. People reap what they sow. And what we want is, is we want to then not have to do that. We don't want the fruit of what we've done. And because God leaves the fruit of what we've done, we think we're not forgiven. But you can be completely forgiven. Jesus, I completely forgive you. I will not remember ever again that that you ever did this. And yet there you are eating the corn that you grew yourself. That's how I eat corn anyway. Now, we need the grace to learn what this means. And, and what we find is in characters in the, in the Bible, we, we get, we're often very confused by things that happen in the Bible. And, and this, is, this is what I mean. Like, I, I've heard people say, oh, Adam you know, Adam was the first guy in hell. I think, well, why would you say that? Why would you say that Adam would be the first person in hell? And they're like, well, how could he, he caused the fall. How could he possibly go to heaven? Well, I don't know. You're falling. How are you going there? Right, <laughs> I mean, if we're going to have this conversation, let's have this conversation. Or, or the, the one that really people struggle with is the generation who died in the desert, who, who were going to go into the promised land and were denied. Now, some of them died in their sins in the midst of their rebellion. Okay, that seems fairly obvious. But the consequence of what they did was to wander around in the desert. God says, okay, I forgive you. But you're, the consequence of what, what you've done is you're not going in the promised land. Does anybody think Moses isn't going to be in heaven? And yet he struck the rock twice, and he didn't go to the promised land because going to the physical promised land wasn't the same thing as going to heaven. And so in, in characters in the Bible, we get confused about this kind of thing all the time. And then we go into our lives, and we're just as confused. Well, God couldn't possibly, right? I mean, look at what happened to them. He doesn't forgive them. Well, no, he he could possibly forgive that person, but what they're doing is eating the corn they grew. And amen. Right? May they never grow it again. Now, the sober reality that David's child was the product of a sinful union is highlighted by the fact that his mother was referred to as Uriah's wife. Right? We're still dealing with this. This is Uriah's wife. That you, that's whose wife it was when he slept with her, David. And this child is going to die. Immediately, the newborn child becomes ill. And this is very tough for us because it is a child. I, under, I mean, I, I fully understand. I fully understand. But we're, we're not dealing with a tame lion. We're not dealing with a tame lion. The, the effects of sin is, is, not, um, is not sentimental. And that's what we want. We want a sentimental God. Well, God would never hurt a child. God would never take a punishment out on a child except look up at his child. If he's... Right? It, <coughs> he didn't withhold the wrath from his own kid. So if he didn't withhold the wrath from his own son, why are we sentimental about everybody else's? He's not that sentimental about his own. No, because there are greater purposes involved. There's other things going on. Now, David's efforts on his child's behalf, is beautiful, right? God has said, this is what's going to happen. But he, he's restored to God, and he knows this God. And so he's not going to eat, he's not going to drink, he's going to lie on the floor in the presence of the Lord, and he is not going to stop knocking on that door. Save this child, save this child, save this child. And you see here the real remorse of his sin, finally. It's not just lip service in Psalm 51. You see here, he is truly, truly affected by it. This is what actual. This is what it looks like when a person is actually affected by their sin. Sometimes, when people are telling me the horrible things that they have done, and there's no hint of sorrow now or ever, I I actually doubt what they're telling me. Like there are there are sins. Like I've heard myself. I I, I admitted to a sin not that long ago. We don't need to get into specifics. And I heard the lack of sorrow in my own voice. I was like, ha, ha, ha. I was like, man, everyone step away. The lightning may come any moment. What we see here, this is how we, this is how we respond to the sins that we have done. We lie on the floor. We do not eat. We, do, right? we cry out to God, deliver us, deliver us, save us. True sorrow for sin is the, is the fruit of real confession, of real repentance. Now, his own household tries to get him to stop, and he won't listen to them. He's not listening to anybody but the Lord. And the Lord said this is what he's going to do, and so his attention is on the Lord and not anybody who's trying to interfere with him. David has understood an important element in prophecies of judgment and one expressed by our Lord as he contemplated the coming judgment on Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus, when he saw Jerusalem, he said, How often would I have gathered your children together, and you were not willing. All of the destruction that that God promises in the latter prophets to come to Jerusalem, and Jesus finally gets there, and he's full of sorrow. Why? Because if they would have just cried out for five seconds, he would have stopped. He would have turned it away. Because where's the heart of David in the people of Israel? Jesus sees they are no longer of David. They are no longer sorrowful for their sin. They no longer consider the fact that even now I would turn away my wrath. And he's crying for them, looking upon the city, where they will kill him. And that's the God that you serve. That's the God you serve. He's going to take all that wrath that we deserve upon himself. And he is worried about us. He's worried about the very people who are going to cause that wrath to be poured out on his head. Now, James chapter 4, verse 2, says something very important. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Because sometimes we think, well, you know, God said it. I've read his word. This is what I deserve because of my sin, and I'm just going to take it on my mouth. Right? I'm going to take what's coming to me. And we've lost any sense of who he really is. He, he actually does like that. He says, you know what? You know what? I-, I have done this. I have done this, but I know this God. And if I cry out to him, maybe he will turn away, right? Maybe I don't have to eat the corn that I myself grew. Maybe I don't have to deal, right? Maybe, maybe he will turn away in mercy and grace and kindness, turn away what's coming to me. And, and this is the difference between truly penitent people and not penitent people. David never gives up on the fact that God is merciful and kind and may at even now turn away from what's coming. Now, David has, had inflicted so much pain on himself during the time of the child's illness that his servants are a little afraid. They come to him now and they're like, Oh, <laughs> when there was still hope, did you see him? And now there's no hope. And so they don't even want to approach him. They don't even want to tell him. He's, he just sees what they're doing. He's, very in, he's got a high emotional intelligence. And he can tell by the way that they're acting that the baby has died. And he calls them forward. And he says, tell me, did the baby die? Right? And it, what the Hebrew word that they say, it says, he may do something desperate. It literally means evil or harm. He may do something evil. He may do some harm. Because people, right, in their grief, sometimes were a little worried. How far are they going to go with this? It's extreme what he's doing. They're not used to it. Think about it. These are Israelites, and they're not used to the level of grief that he's showing over the sin that he has done. Now, the servant's fears are proved unjustified. When the child died taking David's deserved death, David arose, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he worshipped, and then he ate. Now, and his servants are like, wait, what? What are you doing? And, and they actually question him. Why are you doing this thing? They say, why are you doing this thing? It doesn't seem natural to them. Before, look at the grief. Now you don't seem to care at all. Now you're going to church. Now you're eating food. What, what gives? And it's because they don't understand the God that David serves. Right? The household of David is in, is in a bad way. David rose from the dust of death to the table, a resurrection for David that depended on the death of his son. Now if you th- right of all the things, did you think that this was a gospel pitch? Adam falls and it results in the death of his son who saves him and restores him. David sins, and, and what happens? His son is it's a substitutionary death for David that saves David. And so we are sentimental, and we think, God, why would you harm this poor child? And what is God really doing? He's saying, listen, you guys want to understand how this works? The fathers, your father, has caused the death of one of his sons, and it's going to save all of you. Adam caused the death to come into this world, and, and what's going to happen is that one of his greatest sons of all time is going to die, and what it's going to do is not only save Adam, but save everyone in Adam who believes who turns and cries out for salvation. And, and, and we, right, are so, we, we come upon these stories and we don't understand them. And, and they, they, they offend our sensibilities. And so, and, and what we miss is what God is really telling us. Through the death of our sons, right, through the death of sons comes the, the, the restoration of fathers. Now, is that universally true for all of us? No, but that's the grand story that the Lord is telling. A son will come, and he will crush the head of the, of, of the serpent, and though he will be bitten on the ankle, and he will restore his father Adam to heaven. And in every page of Scripture, no matter how, much we, how little we understand it, no matter how much it, it, it offends our sensibilities, it is about Jesus, even this, because Jesus will go down into the worst, most tawdry stories of the scripture and there dwell to reveal himself to us. Which, Jesus doesn't have anything to do with this story, does he? I mean, it's a de- right? David is, is, is murdering people, and he's sleeping with women who aren't his wife, and now his son's going to die, and this has nothing to do with Jesus He couldn't possibly. And this is how little we know the scriptures. This is how little we know the God that we're serving. This is how much we're guided by our own wisdom and understanding. Because even in this, this story, which to me personally is one of the lowest, right? It's one of the most difficult. It's one of the most difficult to read. And in it, it dwells the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the substitutionary death of a son, the father has hope. The father knows that he will sit in heaven. And and that's what David goes on to say. He says, listen, the child when the child was still here, there was still the possibility that he could be saved. And, and now, you, why am I rejoicing? Because he's somewhere now where he's not ill anymore. He's not sick anymore. Because to be, pre- right, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And David understands this. And there's no way that the baby's coming back to him now. So he's clearly not the same as, as Saul, who tried to get Samuel back from dead to give him advice. David knows where he's gone, he's not coming back but I will go to him. That's why he's going to church. That's why he's eating. That's why he's washed his face, because he understands who he serves. He understands the God who has called him to his service. And, and, and there is hope beyond the worst sorrow that we can imagine, beyond the worst difficulty that we can endure. We understand that though these things that we have lost cannot return to us, we shall go to them. Our dead family members, the, right? The, those who, who have gone before us that we miss. We, we look at one another and we see the sorrow and we see the suffering. And where does it lead? It, it leads to a great restoration in the future. The child's death did not mean that God was unjust, it did not mean that God wasn't loving. On the contrary, it meant that the divine word spoken through the prophet was trustworthy. And even this, think about it. God says the child will die. The child dies, and, and David thinks, okay, God's word is true. Let God's word be true, and every man a liar. So, so, even through this, this terrible circumstance that befalls this child, what David is, is shown is that God's word is true. God says it, and you know what? He's going to do it. And even there, there's hope. Even in the midst of that, there's hope. And the hope isn't David. The hope isn't the child. The hope is the God who doesn't change. The God who is trustworthy. The God who speaks and the God who fulfills what he speaks. Though David was now bereft of his son, the separation would be only temporary. There is to be heard a note of consolation in his word. I will go to him. There is certainty here. He he stands on this truth. I will go to the child. David has come to terms with his own mortality. Even in, the, even in that he finds hope because he looks forward to being reunited with the child. Now the child, even, the child died on the seventh day. He didn't even receive circumcision. The punishment that God has meted out here is nasty. It's nasty. But the sin that caused it is nasty. Right? Now did Adam Adam fell and brought sin into the world, brought death into the world. Jesus has come and he has restored all of us. All of us Right? even though we're forgiven, still have to endure death. Well, why? If, God, right? if, if God's forgiveness wipes away all, <laughs> all the circumstances involved in sin, no, there are still consequences for sin. There's still, and you will die. Your body will lie down on the ground, and it will cease to breathe. Now, and if, do you have the consolation? Does your family members have the consolation that, though they will not return to us, we will go to them? That's David's hope. That's the message of this story. Yes, sin destroys. Yes, sin kills. And Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins. And even though we are forgiven, our sin is so nasty, it still affects this world. And the, no matter what we do, no matter what we do, right, um, to try to minimize that effect, the only thing that wipes away the effect permanently is the Lord God. Because, right, no ma- right, he sinned, the child dies. Is that the end of the story? Is that all there is to be said? No, there there is sorrow, all the sorrow and all the suffering, and, and, and the effect of our sin, which seems so terrible in this world, fills us with so much grief, so much sorrow. It's not the last word. It's not the end of the story. The fruit of heaven is greater than the fruit of hell. The love of God is greater than the anger and hatred of man. The the grace and mercy of God is greater than the sin of man. Because we right. I'm telling you, you do things that, that affect this world in a negative way, and, and you need to think about that. But then the flip side of that is no matter what, how bad it is, no matter the effect you're having, it's not greater than the effect God is having on this world, which is to absolutely cleanse it. Everyone who's going to lie on the ground will stand again. Everyone who goes down into the earth will come up again. And, and in that day, we will see all the sorrow and all the suffering completely undone forever. We will see all the circumstances here that we don't think we can endure. Were something that we're simply we're simply something that we endured for a time, for a time, and that should comfort us because David says, "Listen, I, I can't. He's not coming back, but I'm going to him. He knows it's a temporary thing that he's enduring, and that this is my this is my word to you: the sorrow and the suffering that you're enduring, that you're seeing other people endure, it's temporary. It's temporary." It, it, the lasting, it has no lasting effect. It's not going to overcome what God is going to do. What he has accomplished in his son. What he is even now accomplishing in his son in you and through you. No matter what. No matter how bad the sin that you endure. The sin that you do. No matter how bad it is. It will be undone. It is a temporary thing. And that is what gives us hope. That is what gives us courage. That is what makes it so that we're not just lying down on our face in sorrow all the time. We can't undo what we have done. Right? We can't undo all the effects that we've had on all the people because of all of our sin. But God can. And God will. And that is David's hope. I pray that it is all of our hope. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and kindness, your mercy and grace to us. We know, Lord God, that our sin is uh, wicked and evil, that it affects us, that it affects uh, our circumstances, that it affects everyone around us. And we know, Lord God, that you discipline those children whom you love. And we know, Lord God, that no matter what we do, uh, it is not permanent. But your work on the cross is permanent. Your work at the empty tomb is permanent. Your ascension to the right hand of the Father is permanent. And that is our hope. We can't bring back those who are gone, and we can't undo what we have done, Lord God. But we know, we know that we will see you face to face, that we will see all the sin and sorrow of this world thrown into the the everlasting pit of hell, where it it will be done away with forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.